listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Most of us live in a state of tacking back and forth between feeling safe in the world and fearing that it's a dangerous place. In the current COVID-19 situation, many of us are being pulled more into a space of feeling like danger is everywhere. For those who have experienced the death of someone, whether expected or unexpected, that sense of the world being an unpredictable place where bad things happen can become particularly intense. Jason Green is very familiar with the reality that tragedy can happen at any time to anyone. In May of 2015, his daughter Greta, who had recently turned two, was spending the day with her grandmother Susan. Greta and Susan were sitting on a bench in Manhattan, when a piece of masonry, a brick, fell from a ledge above, hitting both Greta and Susan. Susan survived, but Greta did not. As Jason writes, Greta was the victim of an accident. In the immediacy of this trauma, Jason turned to words and to documenting what was happening as he, his wife Stacy, and their community faced this outrageous heartbreak. What started as notes on his phone eventually became a book entitled, Once More We Saw Stars. And listeners, this book is phenomenal. Jason's words invite readers first into the raw and unprocessed early days of grief, but then also into the ongoing evolution of that grief as he and Stacy explore avenues of healing and eventually the birth of their second child, Harrison. There are books that stun you and books that stick with you days and years after you first read them. Once More We Saw Stars is one of those books. When I read it last summer, I never dreamed I'd be able to talk with Jason about Greta, about grief, and about what life feels like now, almost five years after her death. Jason, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, an honor to talk with you, and I'm also, I have to admit, listeners a little intimidated because I first read Jason's book, Once More We Saw Stars, last summer in August in a day. I think it took me seven hours. I couldn't put the book down and I read it at the beach and was just um, taken by every chapter, every paragraph. And so it's, it's like a huge honor to talk with you today, Jason. Thank you. Oh, I mean, thank you so, so much. I mean, that's a beautiful, this, the image of you reading it at the beach alone means a lot. So thank you. And for listeners who aren't familiar with your story, can you tell us a little bit about your daughter, Greta? What was she like? Greta, uh, Greta was our first child, my wife, Stacy, and me. She was born in 2013, April 27th. She was funny. She was a very funny kid. And I don't know if anyone's kid is not funny. <laughs> Kids are inherently kind of funny people. But even for kids, Greta was funny. She, her, her grandmother used to always say she gets the joke and you could even see it in pictures of her. She was always smiling to herself about, about something. She was very just chatty. Again, another, you know, lots of little kids are chatty, but 
Greta had this way of like stopping adults and talking to them on the street. And she is two, you know, it's a very interesting sight to see a two-year-old buttonholing an adult on the sidewalk and talking to them, but she, she was capable of that. She was just wildly observant and incredibly, just such a talker. Um, she talked so much for a kid her age and we didn't know, my wife and I, just how much she was capable of telling us until we had our second child and we sort of started to compare, not directly, but just we learned more, uh, you know, and what we realized was that uh, Greta was able to speak in sentences ridiculously early. So she told us a lot, which was amazing. She was kind of a mix of introvert and extrovert. She would talk to anyone, but she was really scared of big groups. She didn't like lots of little kids yelling and shouting. She chose her friends very carefully. She wasn't that kid who was friends with everyone. Uh, she wouldn't run squealing to meet someone down the block. She would kind of, you know, she zeroed in. Um, in every respect, she was very much a child of, of me and my wife. I mean, we recognized so much of her personality in both of us. There's one part in your book where you talk about Greta being so compassionate and how when she would see that if you were upset or struggling with something, she would come over and just like pat you on the shoulder and say, it's okay. And yeah, I was like, gosh, for a two-year-old to be that empathetic. She did that to me when I was mad and frustrated at an airport because we couldn't find our rental car. And it was one of those moments where, you know, I wasn't in deep grief. I wasn't in any, I wasn't experiencing any profound emotion of any sort other than just frustration, but I lost it for a minute like everybody does. And that's when she reached over and patted me in the shoulder. And she did the same thing when I was, you know, uh, I think she noticed that most of one of us was stressed out because she found that kind of funny. Some kids, I think, get upset if their parents like raise their voices or, um, and whenever that happened, whenever Stacy or I would say, you know, oh man, or swear, or say, oh God damn it, or whatever it is that we said and lose it for a moment, you know, instead of looking up and starting to cry, making me feel guilty and terrible, she would just look up and she would say something like, daddy, what's wrong with you? you know? <laughs> it was just kind of her impulse. She was unfazed by those moments of humanity. I don't know. She seemed to understand that they were part of the deal somehow. <laughs> and you mentioned your son, Harrison that you and Stacy had a little over a year after Greta died and, and sort of the differences. Are there ways that you see Greta in Harrison? There's so many ways, man. They are so alike. Harrison as well will talk an adult's ear just right off. I mean, you don't want to ask that boy a question unless you just have a, a lot of time for the answer all the time in the world. But he also <laughs> is not super social with other kids. He likes kids okay, but he has also been weirdly okay with this moment in which we are not having play dates. Both he and Greta have a deeply introverted streak. It's an interesting combo, you know, because people sort of tend to tell you that they're either an extrovert or an introvert. It's a way of classifying themselves, but you know, most people have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and both Harrison and Greta are this fascinating mix. Yeah, they have so much in common. It's kind of crazy, actually. As you're talking, it makes me wonder, because Harrison's now three, and Greta was two when she died. So you and Stacy are seeing him get to milestones and developmental places that Greta didn't get a chance to. And I wonder what that's like as a parent. You know, it's funny. I, I think I spent a lot of time thinking about that in my head uh, before Harrison caught up with Greta's age. Some of these things I've noticed, uh, all of my fears surrounding parenting Harrison, all of the worries that came along with my grief and um, 
I guess just my worries that I was going to affect my son in ways I couldn't handle or predict or whatever. All that stuff has been in my head. And in some ways I was worrying about it as early as Stacy getting a pregnancy test back. In some ways that worry was the act of writing Once More We Saw Stars. It was one prolonged act of worrying about who the father would be of this child who was about to come into the world. I had already begun writing something, but really, and, I, and I've said this, um, when we found out that we were gonna have another kid, that's when this timer went on in my head and I, I be, 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 began behaving like a person on a mission of sorts to write it. All that is sort of background, that's sort of a long-winded way of, of saying that I notice so much, and I notice it over and over again, that no matter how much time I spend worrying in my head about the kind of parent I am or the way that my grief interacts with Harrison or what it's gonna be like, to your question, to see Harrison catch up with Greta, it averages out to almost nothing in the real world because parenting is so matter of fact, it's so about the moment you're in. I mean, maybe other parent, maybe I'm alone in that. Maybe other parents have a, a game plan and they've sat down with each other and they've mapped out what they're gonna say about this or that, but that's just not how I find myself parenting. And there's a way that's a blessing because it means I, I haven't overthought much in regards to Harrison's development. I think of Harrison as Harrison. You know, he is very much his own person. He's very aware that he has a sister named Greta and he knows that she died um, because he's asked those questions. But that's about it. Otherwise, he's very much living in his own world. This is the kingdom of Harrison that his apartment is right now, which is kind of how <laughs> the kid's life is supposed to feel, you know. And as far as, sorry, I'm like answering everything but your direct question about <laughs> what it's been like for me. In some ways, I didn't notice. I think I spent so much time wondering what it would feel like when Harrison could do X, Y, and Z and I'd never seen Greta do X, Y, and Z, that when it happened, I just stopped paying attention to the differences. A lot of it too feels like they're essentially so similar, the two children, that anything he does and says that's technically more advanced, like he could say things in a more you know sophisticated way than Greta was able to express herself, they just feel like extensions of the same kind of personality, if that makes sense. Um, I had a moment when he went to preschool, for sure, because that was a life experience. And it was inarguably different. And it was inarguably something that Greta did not do. Mm. And I kind of noted that there was a moment of bittersweet uh, and mourning for me in that new vista of life, you know, because I, I, that was the one time where I started thinking about what Greta would have gotten out of school that she couldn't, you know. And Greta died in an accident, and it was one that became just like instantly public. Do you have a sense of what, in what ways the circumstances of how Greta died and the public nature of it, how that shaped or influenced your grief or, or got in the way of it? I think that on the one hand, it compounded our trauma to know that everyone was watching this accident unfold. Um, there's no question. And knowing that there were outside forces while we were in the middle of this worst moment of our lives looking for us. And by that, I mean, news reporters, all that. I know that that complicated and compounded the experience for sure. But I don't have a super clean sense of how, and I don't dwell on it now, you know? Like the, I, we, we all have these things that haunt us from these defining moments. And I can say that, that the sense that Greta's death was public. There are things about the accident for sure. The fact that it was an accident. The fact that it happened under an improperly maintained building. But as far as the fact that people knew about it, 
so much of what's happened that's felt redemptive and meaningful to me in the aftermath of Greta's death was partly because people knew about Greta's death. You know, and I became so aware of this as Stacy and I began going to other grief groups and meeting other bereaved parents who didn't have dead famous children, they just had dead children. It, it made us a little more aware of the kind of support we were getting and what it might be worth to other people. There was no question that people, that the world reacted to Greta's death. And you know, we met people whose, whose bosses probably barely knew that their children had died, you know, and the kind of silence. And so thinking about that, I think, I would never have written, well, I don't know if I would never would have written this book. I should never go so far as to say that. But there would be no Once More We Saw Stars. This particular book and its particular place in the world and you and I would not be having this conversation at all if not for the facts of that. So. Yeah, it's interesting to think that, you know, her her death was so public because it was an accident and it was in the news cycle. And then the memoir you wrote also brings Greta into the mindscape of all of us that are reading that book or have the opportunity to read it. And as I was reading your book, I was really struck by the fact that a lot of memoirs about grief, those defining moments, as you, as you put it, they are written retrospectively years after the death or the, the tragedy. And, and your book started on your phone, right? Like doing notes on your phone in the moment as it was unfolding. And I wonder what it's like for you now to go back to that book. Yeah, gosh, you know, this is um, a part of myself that I haven't. <laughs> it's a funny thing to me to, to think about. And I'll, I'll be perfectly blunt in, in saying that I, I don't, it doesn't understand how my, how my mind does, did this. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a mystery to trauma. I'm a mystery to myself. When something like this happens to you, you are completely in the dark about who you are for a while. And even if that means that you just find yourself responding in a way that you are like clinically surprised by. There's a clinical part of your brain that's watching you. And there's a part of you that's able to say, huh, this seems unusual. <laughs> Honestly, I, I simply obeyed an overwhelming compulsion to record everything I was thinking. I can't account for what other people do, although I have learned that what I do is not what many others in trauma who write have done. Many others in trauma who have written, like you say, wrote it years after, but I didn't know that in my isolation chamber. I simply wrote down what I knew. I mean, I know that I'm able to write now in the middle of all this. It just seems like there's a part of my brain that makes words that has never gone off and won't ever. And that's not a, that sounds like I'm almost boasting about something. It's just simply a weird compulsion that I have observed. And it's never become more under the microscope than when I found myself writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words days after my daughter had been killed by a brick. I just, it simply felt like the heavy lifting I needed to do to survive. And it happened to involve writing. As I was reading it, it felt like a mind documenting what was happening and making its way through in the way that that knew how to do that you know and that grief is so different for everybody we all find ways to to navigate it differently and for some it's going to be this type of documenting and expressing and for others it's going to be more of an internal process and so i for me it was it felt like such an honor to walk into that mindscape with you as wow. you were going through it thank you yeah I should say too that once, once I sort of moved on from the space where I was blindly writing to survive, as the months went on, 
I was still operating on a sort of base level of needing to write, but I also began thinking about what I was doing. And there's this weird nebulous point in my writing of this where it went from being a journal to a book. And I have never really been able to pinpoint that moment. Um, because so much of it, I, I, it's just so weird for me to, to think back to uh, the writing of some of those sentences, which are verbatim in the book. I mean, many of them, this, there's this sentence in the book really early on, there will be more light upon this earth for me. And I mentioned writing it down uh, eight days after Greta died. And that's true because I went and copied it from my notes app on my phone. I think that as I sort of began to think about all this stuff I had as its own entity, I started to think about what I wanted it to be like. And I think that's when I started shaping the material a little bit, even as I was processing, right? It's weird to go through an experience like the one I described where I'm at this um, grief retreat, having this profoundly cathartic experience, and then writing it down shortly afterward and have a part of your mind thinking about how it can fit into a narrative. And I think that, you know, but I was doing that. I was aware of it. I was like, oh, this feels like a piece of, of a story. I don't know what the rest of it is yet. But whatever it is, I feel like I need to write as much of it down as possible because I'm certain that it will be a story. It almost sounds like the process of surviving and then moving into a place of observing yourself surviving. Yeah, I think that when you say sort of to me that you were felt like you were in a mind trying to heal itself. I, th I remember thinking very like concrete thoughts about how I wanted this book to feel, you know, and I, cause I did want it to then be a book. I didn't just want it to be this chunk of me. I wanted it to be a book. Um, and then I, that activated all these other parts of my brain. And there was a luxury being able to think super clinically about how other people might respond to this stuff and how it might all fit together. It's another way of stepping outside of your own experience and making it about someone other than you. And so there was a part of me that, you know, thinking about the aesthetics of the book, yes, I wanted to feel like a real-time immersion in my grief, but also not never to wallow in grief. I had read books about grief that struck me as unprocessed wallowing or wailing, and that didn't appeal to me personally. I think that there are people who read books like that for cathartic reasons. They need to be in touch with those things. But for me, I was looking for books that move forward, through, and out and that sort of trace that journey, you could feel the weight of the journey. It also wasn't just a triumph story where all of a sudden the person is healed, but. I'm, I keep thinking about the word movement, right? Yeah. Like in the book, you feel movement and not that it's a linear movement, but there's movement. And I also think about the three roles that, I mean, you have multiple roles, but you have the role of being a grieving father. You have the role of being the husband to a grieving mother and also the role of being a parent to a son who never got a chance to meet his sister in her physical form. And just thinking like, what is it, what's it like for you to traverse those three roles? Hmm. I mean, Harrison needs certain things. He needs certain things for me when it comes to knowing about his sister and his, and what, what, what his life means in the context of this family so for him, I'm just a, an answerer of questions. I answer the questions that he asks when he asks them. That's been a sort of ongoing process. I feel my way through that. And I find myself not straining to mention Greta a lot in conversation because I don't want to uh, talk about her in a way that feels like she's being inserted into his reality for him. He knows that there's an oil painting in her living room and that's a representation of his sister when we did a family wall of pictures at his preschool, we had pictures of everyone and we took a picture of the oil painting. 
for her because we wanted there to be the sense that she was with us, but not maybe in quite the same way that the others were. You know, and everyone, I've met lots of, or talked to, if not met, I've spoken with lots of parents who are raising children in similar circumstances where the first child has died before the second one was born. And everyone has a very different approach. Some people feel very, very strongly about foregrounding the reality of that first child's life. And for, for, for whatever reason, and this is years of therapy later before I can tell you why, I, I think I'm just sort of, both of us are sort of responding to this sense that for Greta, for Harrison, Greta was before Harrison. And I, there's this sense that I have of, of remembering what it felt like to be given unsolicited information about my parents' lives before me as a child. I recall it being confusing and it obscuring more than it revealed and leaving me with this sort of dark sense of my contingency in the world. <laughs> I wanted to know things about my parents when I was ready to ask them. Hey, mommy, tell me that story again about the time you were, you know, on the Lower East Side of New York or whatever the story happened to have been. And then when I was asking, it was because I was curious and wanted to know. And I think I followed that impulse. So when Harrison's not asking about Greta, I, I try not to stuff him full of stories about her. There are moments then, when, you know, late at night, one night when I'm lying on his couch in his room waiting for him to fall asleep, when he'll sit up and say, you know, tell me a Greta story, and then I will. Whatever Greta's relationship is to him, I want him to figure it out, you know what I mean? And if it takes him 14 or 15 years to ask me lots of questions about how Greta died, how I felt about it, that's how long it takes. You know, that is his, I think my fundamental rule is that on every single respect, we're on his timetable. Yeah, they go at his pace and let him make those decisions and ask the questions, knowing that you and Stacy are right there to answer. You're not responding in that like, oh, we don't talk about that. It's like very much an open door. Absolutely. And any thoughts about, and maybe there's no differentiation between grieving Greta as a father and being there with Stacy, who's grieving her daughter as Stacy's husband. Yeah. Um, Grieving for us has been very private in the last couple of years. Um, in the beginning, it was very public and it was very communal. It needed to be for us. But since Harrison has been born and our lives have shifted emphasis and focus, the grief is always there, but um, I think we just kind of carry it with us softly and sort of side by side. There are moments when I'm aware of Stacy being saddened or, or struggling, um, but I don't often think she wants to talk to me in the moment unless she tells me she does. I think what she needs is space and support, and likewise me. It's just this common fact, you know, it's been like five years, you know, and it's like after a certain point, <laughs> you know, it's not that there's nothing to talk about because there always will be, but you also don't want to hear yourself repeat the same things over and over again to the person you've repeated them to a thousand times already. So sometimes the best thing to do is just to sit there. And also I think is probably a product of being very all hands right now in life, just in general with a small child and juggling work. This is a different phase, you know, whereas in earlier we were, we were very much focused on what our feelings meant, you know, and, and now we're in a little bit different of a life phase. I, I like the idea of it being a shared language that doesn't necessarily need to be spoken at this point. Yeah. I, or you can convey a lot with very few words. Speaking of being a few years out from Greta's death, 
are there things that you wish friends and families, family members and colleagues like would ask you either about grief or about Greta? God, what a great question. I was lucky in that almost everyone in my life was just instantly ready to ask me as many or as few questions as, as I needed in the moment. I wish, and maybe this is just how I think of it. Sometimes I wish I had been more forthcoming in the moment about things people did ask me. I think I gave people sometimes the answers that I knew would help them because that was easier to me than telling them whatever it was the truth was. I don't know if that would have made me feel less alone um, because I wasn't, you know, I had a lot of people offering hands, but I didn't always take them the way that I could have. But I also sensed that that was something I was doing. I was protecting against a sort of impulse to not feel too exposed. Cause at the time I remember navigating with a very strong sense that I had been overexposed given the, the scope of everything. Um, as far as, I man, I, I don't really, I don't live with any regret about that. Let me say that. I, I, I don't, like some people really do hold on to a sense that they were mistreated by their loved ones or that they were let down in ways that their loved ones couldn't understand because they didn't, they didn't ask them questions that they needed to, they needed to be, have asked. If that happened to me, it's gone and I don't remember it. I don't remember anything that I wish people had asked me in the moment. I truly, you know, I don't tell anymore. Um, it's all part of the weird morass and blur. And also if I was bitter about something, I, I was, I guess I was insightful enough to know that I was bitter because I was bitter, not because someone had said the wrong two words to me or, and I asked the right question. I'm thinking about the idea that, you know, it's been, I think you said it's been five years since Greta died and imagining like new people that you've met since then. And that a lot of folks that I talk with when it's been a few years since their person died, and they're meeting new people or even people who have been part of their life, it sort of falls off the radar to ask about the person or ask about the grief. And yeah, just wondering if there's things from current day that you're like, ah, I really wish I had the opportunity to talk about X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I think that I have regrets that are a little bit more like, um, I wish that I was still more in touch with the, 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 the parents of Greta's friends. I, we don't see them anymore. You know, really, and it's not because we can't, we can't bear to see them. It's just a, a lot of them, you know, first of all, we moved neighborhoods. Second of all, a lot of them had second children um, and are in a very different phase than we are in. And But I, I think that there's a part of me that mourns the loss of some of those communities because those are the places where Greta existed most vividly. You know, like we don't talk to a lot of people who remember Greta alive, <laughs> um, apart from, you know, me, Stacy, Stacy's mother, Susan, my brother-in-law, Jack, even that, you know, like my, my parents lived eight hours away, so they didn't see her very often and they only have a handful of memories of her in person anyway. The people who saw her a lot were her old friends and neighbors. And sometimes I, I do mourn the loss of some of that. I feel like Greta has become more fiction than reality in my head occasionally, or she's more of an idea than a person now because I don't have a lot of people around me who can remind me just how real she was when she was here. Yeah, those people where she was a shared location in a sense. Yes, exactly. Yep. She was a shared fact, not just a private one. You know, the ones that are private facts, they start to feel like they're maybe, maybe you made it all up. You know, are you sure it's real? You know, who else can verify that for you? Yeah. And that, and speaks to that ongoing nature of the relationship that we can have with the people who have died too. 
Like there's the relationship we had when they were here in their physical form. And then there's the relationship we have after they're no longer here and how those not realities, but those relationships get interwoven and sometimes can be hard to pull apart. Like, did that actually happen in on this planet? Or is that something that I've conceived of in our ongoing relationship? For sure. Yeah, it's beautifully said. I talk to Greta's painting a lot. I have a very metaphysical relationship with her. I think of her as an old spirit. Now I can talk to her however I want. She, whatever the voice in my head is that represents her, you know, and, and, and some part of me is most comfortable with that. Because honestly, that is where a lot of the pain is, is in seeing people who used to know her as a physical body on this planet, and, you know, being reminded of that absence, her absence as a body. And it's also hard to see the kids who I used to measure her growth against every day. You know, they are incomprehensibly old now. There is pain there that I don't feel elsewhere. So Jason, as we as we come to kind of the end of our conversation, I'm very aware that it is April of 2020 and we are in the middle of a pandemic and you're living in New York, which is kind of one of the hardest hit places in our country. And just wondering if there's anything in this context of the pandemic that's sparking stuff in your grief or just, yeah, like how that's all coming together. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to speak to this because everyone's grieving, right? This is like grief that's happening to every single person, which is very unique. I was on a grief group, uh, like a Facebook live grief group the other week. Uh, David Kessler, who is a grief expert and um, has written a lot of books about grief and who in fact lost his adult son a few years ago and wrote a book about it called Finding Meaning. He has stepped into this weird void that we have now in society where everyone's grieving, but no one can meet. Um, and he's hosting pop-up grief groups on Facebook and he asked me to come talk to him. And I was so overcome with this sort of sense of universality, right? I mean, everyone is in so much grief right now. Um, and, and I think you put this to me in one of the questions you sent along, like there are so many things to grieve, even if you've lost no one to COVID, there are just, endless numbers of things that feel like they're transforming, transfiguring, or dying right now. So in a sense, I feel like I'm a single note lost in this, you know, whale, this worldwide sense of grief. And honestly, being plugged into that was really powerful to me. I was reminded of how many people are out there. And even though they're alone right now in their homes, and they were typing things like, I feel connected right now to you, you know, even, and, and I think that in my moments when I feel alone and I don't feel connected to people, there are parts of my, that raw unprocessed stuff that comes up, you know, and what those moments say to me are, the world is dangerous again. The world is newly dangerous, Jason. You should, you know, you should never relax for a minute. You know, that's the voice of trauma talking, hypervigilance talking. You should never relax for a minute. The world is dangerous. And when I interrogate that voice, what do you mean that my children don't really get this? It, I find that I, I don't really have an answer for myself. There's just this sense that I think that when the brick fell, I learned that a certain kind of horrible thing could happen. Societies could fail egregiously. And, and no matter your perspective on the politics of the situation, for me personally, when the election happened, I had this re-traumatizing sense that these things could happen on a societal scale. Massive, massive edifices could fall. 
and that sense of like, again, like a metaphysical danger to society. I think that is the place that my trauma sometimes rears its head again and I don't feel safe or I don't feel, in some ways, like the actual physical bodily threat, which may be what is most, most immediate for many. It, I, I think, because, you know, and speak to me again in a week, God knows, no one, <laughs> no one knows how any of this stuff is going to pan out, right? But in a time and place where I'm unaffected by it, my wife is unaffected by it in terms of her health and, you know, and our son is our son. He's healthy. And if I enlarge children who get it, aren't, aren't stricken with much. Um, I don't wander around with an exaggerated sense of any sort of physical peril at all, but I just sort of feel like the larger ground beneath me sometimes. And I, but then again, you know, I'm just bringing my trauma to what everyone is feeling. I think everyone feels some level of that. It just, for me, it evokes some echoes of this moment in my life when this happened you know, this, this apocalypse, this personal apocalypse sort of happened to our family. And it seems like from what you were saying of being on that call with, with David Kessler and other folks in the world who are grieving that I don't want to put words in it, but it almost felt reassuring or some sort of sense of solace of like, we're all grieving, like we're in this together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the only stuff that has helped Stacy and I sort of live through our own grief is to be reminded that we aren't alone. I mean, the irony of grieving is that you feel very alone despite experiencing the most universal primal emotion. Like you are experiencing the thing that unites every single human being on earth. Um, and yet you, you are telling yourself that nobody understands. That's what, you, that's what you hear. It's, you know, and it's hard to break out of that. Yeah, and there's some element of, this is universal, we're all gonna experience it. And no one else is going to experience this particular relationship that I lost. You know, right. That- no one else had that relationship. And so that is unique and alone. And there's lots of other people with their unique relationships who are grieving and we can find commonality there. Right. And maybe, and I think about it, I w- we were told that they, no one could possibly understand what we were going through. Again, because the incomprehensible freak accident nature of her death. And also the fact that it was in the news, like, you know, people would come to us and constantly tell us that no one could ever possibly understand. And it was a way of sort of, I think, they were treating us with this sort of awe and in a way, it, was, it spoke of their care for us and their love for us and their empathy, right? But it also did this thing where it made us feel like we were alone, like we were sort of being told we were. And it was a way of trying to honor the, the, the depth of the pain that they imagined we felt. But it also made us feel like, oh, well, maybe no one can understand. And we, when we first went to like this grief group in, in Kripalu that I write about in the book where I met David Kessler, realizing that people could understand was this beautiful thing. We're like, oh, we're, you know, we don't need to be special to like heal. Um, We don't need the feeling that no one can understand our unique relationship with Greta. Like in other words, we were given that so much that we almost needed to reject it in order to sort of go in the other direction of uniting with others. We had to say, I know that your loss of your brother was nothing like my loss of my daughter, but you and I have so much we can talk about still. And like, that was what gave us relief. Yeah. It speaks again to the power of the the support group. You know, I think about the groups that we offer at the Dougie Center and the groups that you've been part of and how important that can be for folks to come together and be like, there's a place I still belong. Like I'm not so unique in my grief that I can't fit in anywhere. Like this is the place. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really important. Yep. Well, Jason, I am so grateful for you taking time out of your pandemic day to talk with me today. Yeah, I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity. And listeners, keep an eye out because Jason, your book is coming out in paperback, right? That's correct. May 12th. 
So if you're looking for a way to be supporting your local bookstores, now's the perfect time to pre-order Once More We Saw Stars in paperback. I'd love to hear from you if you read the book. You know, did you sit down and go through it in seven hours like I did? Or did you do you parcel it out in little bits? Or how does it speak to you? So reach out to me. I'd love to hear. And Jason, yeah, thank you again for being part of the show. Thank you so much. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our community. We couldn't do the show without you. Many of you have reached out to me at my brand new email address, griefoutloud at dougie.org. I've just so enjoyed hearing from you. Um, so feel free to keep reaching out to me. I'd love to know what the show means to you. And if you ever feel drawn to support our work, you can go to dougy.org forward slash grief out loud. There's a large blue button that says donate now. Feel free to contribute to the show if you're drawn to do that. So thanks for listening and hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.